This is the Intego Mac Podcast. The voice of Mac security. For Thursday, July 21st, 2022. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include Facebook's new URL scheme, meant to provide more privacy for you or better tracking information to Facebook. We'll tell you what they're up to. For the first time in a long time, iPhone apps are making more money for developers than games. What's changed? Believe it or not, Chrome OS Flex just might be what your old Mac computer needs to become useful again. And we'll take a first look at Apple's new M2 MacBook Air. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing fine. It's been a long time. I haven't seen you for a week. Yeah, a whole week. We have a whole bunch of news. We've got some security news. We've got a new Mac to talk about in the second part of the podcast. We've got some malware. Let's start about something that Facebook has done. Now, this is interesting. So when you look at a URL on, say, Facebook or Amazon, you've got the base URL, and then you've got often a question mark and a whole bunch of data after it. It could be really long. When I paste a link like that into an email message, for example, I always remove all that extra stuff because it's like 10 lines sometimes. If I do it into messages or Twitter, it doesn't matter because it gets truncated. It doesn't get cut off, but you don't just don't see everything. And Facebook has realized that they can't track how people use URLs very well because people do remove that sort of tracking information because it is ugly. So they're changing the way they create URLs to make them totally random so people can't remove that information. Right. And in fact, this is not just something that people sometimes manually remove when they're pasting it into an email. In fact, Mozilla is starting in Firefox version 102. They added URL stripping as a feature to improve your privacy because they want to make sure that, you know, as much as possible, they're kind of getting rid of all this tracking stuff that shows up in a URL. So uh, typically this starts with a question mark. Often you'll have a slash and then a question mark, but for sure there's always at least a question mark. And then the part after that, you have a bunch of, might say things like UTM, or it might say other things that are like tracking identifiers, basically. And so these things are generally not at all required in order to get the same page that the person who originally pulled up that page was able to see, you know, if they, if they share that, that same URL, but they strip off the question mark and everything after that, usually you'll get exactly the same page. So Facebook's idea is, okay, well, now that browsers are stripping this stuff off by default, we'll just encrypt the whole URL. So now, now if you try to share a URL, there's nothing to strip off. We're still, you have to go through us to get to where you want to go. And so we'll still be able to track it that way. Okay, so we're going to link to an article on ghacks.net. And it has been updated with a comment from Facebook who says that they're not doing it for tracking, but they're doing it as a privacy measure to deter scrapers from collecting and potentially misusing people's Facebook IDs. Yeah, sure. Sure, that's yeah, why you're doing it. I kind of wonder. <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. Yeah. You, you know what I've noticed when you do an Amazon URL, if you've searched for something and then you've clicked on, say, I'm searching for a book with certain words and I click on the title, if I select the URL, it has the search terms in the URL. You don't always want people to know what you've searched for. So there can be visible data 
that you don't want people to know, or it can be the sort of tracking data that you were just talking about. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes, for example, it'll show your original search before you started like checking other things as well. So yeah, there's things like that that you should be aware of. Check your URLs carefully before you share them, because you never know, there might be something, you know, in spite of what Facebook is doing. So Facebook is obviously regardless of what they're saying, they're really doing this because of tracking, right? They want to be able to track everything. That's their whole thing. That's how they make money is tracking you and knowing everything about you. Aside from that, though, it's still a good idea to check those URLs before you share them. If you do see that question mark and a whole bunch of extra text after that, just know that 99% of the time you can strip all that off. Right. And the URLs look nicer if you're putting them into an email message or someplace else. We have an interesting story that surprises me that for the first time, iPhone apps are making more money than games. Now, games have made a lot of money in part because of in-app purchases. You play a game and you buy coins or lives or superpowers or whatever. But because of subscriptions for apps, apps are actually making more money now. I find this interesting because a lot of people are very hesitant to subscribe to apps and now I don't know if this includes apps like Apple Music, right, which is a service which is in an app. But if apps are making more money with subscriptions, on the one hand, maybe it's better for developers who saw that price war heading to the bottom and that they're making more money and able to survive a little bit better. Maybe people are tired of in-app purchases and games. It's hard to tell whether one is going up and the other is going down or something else is happening. We've known for a long time that games have been very, very lucrative. That's been something that people are willing to spend a lot more money on than just about anything else. But now that a lot more apps are starting to do in-app purchase things, it kind of makes sense that eventually something else would, would overtake games. But of course, this isn't any one thing. This is like all other spending, <laughs> overtaking spending that's going on related to games. Right. And we don't know if this includes something like Apple Music and Apple TV Plus. Is is this counted as app spending or is it counted separately as a service? In any case, I'm seeing more and more apps that are sold on the subscription basis. And for some, I don't mind. And for others, it's a deal breaker. I don't want to be tied into a subscription for certain types of apps. I'm just looking in the Mac App Store and I have quite a few app subscriptions but some of them are things, Apple Music, Apple TV+, Plus, New York Times Crossword, where it's more of a service than an app. Others are apps like Bear or Deliveries. So it's, it's a combination of two things. And I think, as I said earlier, if developers are making more money and better able to survive in the race to the bottom in app pricing, I think that's a good thing. Okay, we have a story, and we spent a bit of time before the show looking at old Macs to see which can run. Chrome OS Flex, which allows you to turn your old Mac or PC into a Chromebook. And if you think about it, as Josh has mentioned many times on this podcast, older versions of Mac OS don't get security updates, and you're relatively insecure using an old Mac, like a six or eight or 10-year-old Mac, if it can't run the latest operating system. And Chrome OS Flex can run on some Macs that go back to 2010, and there are a couple of reasons why this is good. You've got an old Mac, you want to give it to your nephew. You put Chrome OS on it, and they can do most of what they're going to need to do. It's in the browser. You can add certain Chrome apps, et cetera. If you're in a school and you've got a bunch of old Macs and PCs that you can't use for security reasons, you can put Chrome on it. And I kind of think that's part of why Google's doing this, because they want Chrome OS to propagate a lot more. But the ability to use this on an old, cheap 
computer, it means you can even go on eBay and buy a $50 PC and turn it into a Chromebook. Right. There are only certain computer models that are being certified as Chrome OS Flex compatible. So Google is testing certain hardware models and saying, we've certified that all of these really important bits of hardware work with Chrome OS Flex. In fact, on on the Mac, they only list nine models. And of those, seven are fully certified. And there's a couple of models that they say most things will work. So this is not something that is necessarily going to work fully on just any Mac that you want to install it on. But, you know, at the same time, they're probably not really testing this with a very wide variety of Macs. So there's there's probably a pretty good chance that at least most important functionality is going to work on on a variety of older Mac hardware. So what I would suggest is, first of all, if you can upgrade an older, unsupported Mac to the current version of macOS, right now that's Monterey, then I would recommend doing that. And you can do this unsupported, remember, through OpenCore Legacy Patcher if if your Mac is on the unsupported by Apple, but supported by OpenCore Legacy Patcher list, then you can upgrade your your older Mac. And in my case, I was able to even upgrade a 2007 iMac. Most like 2008 or newer computers can probably be upgraded to the latest OS, in some cases with some minor hardware compatibility issues. But OpenCore Legacy Patcher, although it's not currently, of course, supporting macOS Ventura, which isn't officially out yet, and it may be several months before they can add support for these older Macs that are not going to be supported in macOS Ventura. It's still probably the best way, I would say, because you get the full Mac experience that way. If it's not supported by OpenCore Legacy Patcher, then maybe consider another operating system. Chrome OS Flex could be one of those operating systems that you consider. You could also install Linux, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> it's it's going to be a little more complicated. And most people really just need a browser these days. Yeah. Uh, you can do just about everything. You check your email, you browse the web. Well, especially if you're in the Google ecosystem and you're using Gmail and Google Docs, et cetera, and you can install apps. I mean, Chrome OS is, is useful for the majority of people. Right, exactly. It it, it can turn a, a, a computer that you're not currently using into something that can be used again. So it, why not give it a shot? Okay, Josh, you have three minutes to talk about three new types of malware. Go. (laughs) Okay. There was a a headline, the scary headline. Hackers could use your Mac to exploit Microsoft Word security flaws. Okay, the only thing you really need to know about this is if your Mac is running macOS Monterey, even macOS Big Sur, which, again, we know doesn't get necessarily everything that macOS Monterey gets, but if your Mac is running the latest macOS, it's not susceptible to this particular flaw. So basically, don't worry about it. Make sure you keep your operating system up to date. Make sure you keep your other apps, Microsoft Office, etc., up to date. Okay, next, CloudMensis, a macOS spyware. Yes, CloudMensis is macOS spyware that's recently been found. Spyware meaning that, in this case, it can do things like exfiltrating documents, logging your keystrokes, etc. Some of the technology that this is using is kind of generic. And so actually Intego software is already able to detect this malware. So again, not something you need to worry about as long as you're running Intego Virus Barrier X9, you're fine. You're protected from this. 
Okay, Seaflower, iOS malware? Is this really iOS malware? The main thing you need to know here is that this malware is specifically targeting people who want to work with cryptocurrency wallets. First of all, if you if you don't do anything with cryptocurrency, then this is not a concern for you. Second, if you are doing things with cryptocurrency on your mobile device, on your iPhone, then the thing the main thing that you should be aware of is be careful about where you click on in web searches and so forth. And if something ever does prompt you to install a configuration profile, that means it's trying to put malware on your device. Oh wait, it's another it's another profile installer. So all we need to say is don't ever install profiles unless you have a particular reason your business requires you to or you're a developer and Apple gives you a profile to install beta software. Don't install profiles. Not complicated. Yeah, not too bad. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the new M2 MacBook Air. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2022. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Monterey and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego. World-class protection and utility software for Mac users. Made by the Mac security experts. Okay, I got me a new Mac. I got the M2 MacBook Air. I got the stock 8GB, 256GB model, which corresponds to the M1 MacBook Air I got a little bit less than two years ago. So it's the cheapest one. I really like this Mac, and, and I hate to say that one of the reasons I like it is because of the color. I'm usually not very concerned about the colors of Macs, but I've never had a black Mac before. It's not really black. I think it's kind of like gunmetal gray, so it's like blue, black, etc., depending on how the light falls. But it is a sexy-looking Mac. Don't you think so, Josh? It's it's not bad-looking. <laughs> I don't know if I'd use the word sexy to describe it, but... Well, compared to other Macs that are boring. So here, here's what we need to know about the MacBook Air. This is the first time since 2008 that Apple has changed the form factor. January 2008, when the first MacBook Air came out, it was that wedge-shaped front. I have a link in my review on the Intego Mac Security blog of Steve Jobs revealing the MacBook Air in 2008. It's really interesting to look at in part for how he's comparing it to some Sony laptops, which also had a sort of wedge shape at the time. But the way he shows how thin it is by sliding it out of a manila envelope, that was such extraordinary showmanship. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've actually seen parodies of Steve Jobs doing that just because it was such an iconic, amazing moment. Yeah. And when you see that presentation by Steve Jobs, he doesn't have the... I don't know. He doesn't have the magical Steve Jobs that he would have a couple years after. 
but he's almost a homie Steve Jobs, right? He's got a little table up there, and if you know what's coming, you can see the manila envelope that's sitting waiting. And he's going through his thing about, here's the best Sony laptops, and we can do this, and ours is half as thick and all that. And so this has actually become Apple's most popular Mac, and there are good reasons. It's thin, it's light, it's at the less expensive end of laptops, and there have been a couple of exceptions over the years, but it stayed down at the low end. When it first came out, it was $1,799, which was pretty expensive, and you were paying for the thinness and the lightness. And it was the first Mac to have an SSD. With the SSD, which was 64 gigabytes, it cost $3,098. Extraordinary price. They dropped the price to $2,598 six months later because flash memory had gotten cheaper. But this was the first experience people had of working with an SSD on a Mac, and that was pretty groundbreaking. Yeah. You know, a lot of people back then, like really, you looked at an SSD and you thought, okay, there's not very much storage on this. Like, what can I even do with an SSD, right? The advantage, obviously, was that it was faster than a spinning drive. And well, of course, the other advantage for mobile computers, too, was that you didn't necessarily have to worry about, you know, jostling your hard drive when you're carrying around your laptop and potentially damaging the drive and, uh, you know, causing data loss. I mean, that that's was a real problem that you had to be concerned about on laptops before the advent of SSDs. So that was another thing too. But for most people, when SSDs first came out, they were just far too expensive for far too little storage. And it didn't feel like it made sense for a lot of people. Okay. You say that there wasn't a lot of storage, but do you know how big the hard drive option was on the original MacBook Air? Uh, off the top of my head? No, I, I don't know. What was it? It was only 80 gigabytes. So you were trading off an 80 gigabyte hard drive for a 64 gigabyte SSD. It wasn't that big a difference. Yeah, that's true. But but the price difference is re was really significant at the time. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the new M2 MacBook Air, and is it the right one for you? There's two type of people who are going to buy this. There's people who just need a Mac to do just the basics, and we're talking about Chrome OS, but more than Chrome OS, and you're using your Mac apps, you're using Pages and Numbers and Keynote and maybe even iMovie. This new MacBook Air is $200 more than the M1 MacBook Air, which Apple is still selling. And without going into all the details in my article, I would recommend that if someone just needs a computer and doesn't care too much about it, they stick with the M1 MacBook Air because that's quite a saving. And for those $200, you could add storage or add RAM or something else. Now, the only problem with that, I would suggest, is because it's an older model, it might not be supported for quite as long as the newer model might be. So that's one thing you should be aware of. If you're if you're only looking to save $200, it might not really be worth it in the long run. That's a good point. Okay, there's been a lot of discussion about the performance of the new MacBook Air. So the M2 processor is roughly 20% faster than the M1. You won't notice the difference in most tasks between one or the other, but what's been getting a lot of press is the fact that the 256 gig SSD is a lot slower. So I did some testing comparing my M1 MacBook Air, which has 256 gigs, and my M2 MacBook Air, which has 256 gigs. Apparently, the reason for this is the previous model had two chips, so two 128-gig chips, which meant that the throughput could be faster, and the new one only has one. It was a little bit more than 50% as fast 
In other words, the new one is almost half the speed of the old one at the same size. And that's kind of shocking when you think about it. This is kind of surprising. And Kirk actually has a couple of screenshots in the article. You, so you can look at them side by side. And, and it is pretty surprising that Apple would use a significantly slower drive in the brand new M2, right? The whole thing about M2 is you've got the latest, greatest, fastest possible processor. So why would you want to hobble that computer with a slower SSD? Hmm. I know. So I did some testing because you're not going to be using the SSD at its throughput all the time, right? So I tested um, compressing a folder for about nine gigabytes and had videos, PDFs, photos, text files on three Macs. So the M1 MacBook Air, the M1 iMac, and the M2 MacBook Air. And they were within a couple of seconds to compress. So if there is a difference in the speed of the drive, it's compensated by the speed of the processor. But what it means is that that operation was within one second exactly the same amount of time on the M2 MacBook Air and the M1 MacBook Air. The thing is, unless you're doing something that's really disk intensive, you won't notice it. Now, I expanded a folder containing a little bit less than five gigabytes of files, and it was between nine seconds and 11 seconds on the three computers. That difference of a second between the M1 and the M2 could just be the moment when I tapped on my phone to start and to stop, because it's really hard to get something precise like that. But it turns out, I think in real world usage, that you won't notice the difference in speed. However, if you plan to do things where your computer is going to be reading and writing a lot, you might want to consider it. So one thing to bear in mind is all Macs use virtual memory. When they need more memory than what's available in RAM. Now, remember, on Macs with M processors, you have what's called unified memory. So when you get eight gigabytes on the base model of the MacBook Air, that's shared between RAM and video memory, right? If that's used up, then the Mac is going to write swap files, virtual memory files to disk, and they're going to be writing and reading. The writing speed isn't that different with the two SSDs, but the read speed is a lot slower, which is surprising because usually the read speed is faster on a drive. So what this could mean is that if you're doing memory intensive and graphic intensive things, your Mac might be a bit sluggish compared to what it could be. And all you have to do is spend $200 more and get the 512 gigabyte storage. Then you have the two chip SSD and the speed goes up to where it was before. Part of me wonders if there might be a firmware update that's coming that will fix this, because this seems really surprising to me, especially now that you point out that usually read speeds are a lot faster than write speeds. With the read speed evidently being lower than the write speed, that does, that really doesn't make any sense. And it makes me wonder if either there was a flaw in the manufacturing process on these drives or that, you know, maybe there's, like I said, a firmware update that will be coming that could improve the, the read speed. I, I don't know. It just seems odd. It though. does. But the teardowns have shown that it's a single NAND chip compared to two on the previous model. And this was seen on the 13-inch MacBook Pro, the M2 MacBook Pro, when that came out people were noticing the same thing. It's not new for the MacBook Air. So it seems more like it's a component issue that for some reason it doesn't have the same throughput. Maybe if it's working with two chips, it can read and write to both chips at the same time, making it faster. I don't know. I was very happy with the M1 MacBook Air with eight gigabytes of memory and 256 gigabytes of storage. And I'm thinking that with this M2, 
I really would want to up the specs a little bit because, you know, you asked me a couple of weeks ago when I said I was going to buy one, you said, I thought you said you were going to keep this for at least five years. And that's what I had said about my iMac, right? And I'm thinking now with the M2 that maybe I will want to plan to keep this for five years. So I might return this, go for 16 gigs, go for 512 while I'm at it, spend the 100 pounds more for the slightly faster processor and spec it out. And plan for the long term. I would be curious to see if if you do some like specific kinds of, of tests, benchmarks and things on your M2 MacBook Air before you return it and before you get the new one. I, I would be curious to see what happens on the new one. If you do those exact same tests, do you get better results having specced it out a little bit higher? Well, I link in my article to an article on Tom's Guide where they did some testing, transcoding videos with Handbrake, and they noticed a definite difference. The thing is, as I was saying earlier, if you just need a basic Mac, maybe the M1 is enough. If you're not doing pro tasks, then you don't need to worry about this. Right. This has made a lot of noise because, as you say, it's surprising. I'm surprised that the read speed is so slow. But for most people, you won't notice it. And for most people, that base model is more than sufficient. I'm just thinking five years time, I can spec it out. It'll be worth more when I resell it, that sort of thing. If you're a pro, don't buy this because there's another thing that the MacBook Air can't do. It can't do sustained intensive processing because there's no fan. And there have been a number of tests comparing this to the 13-inch MacBook Pro with the M2, which does have a fan. And after a few minutes, the MacBook Air slows down because it gets too warm and it can't dissipate heat. This is not surprising. With no fan, there's nowhere for the heat to go. So if you are doing pro tasks, if you're transcoding video a lot, if you're rendering video, then you should get the Pro Mac. There's a reason they call it the MacBook Pro and that they call this one the MacBook Air. Yeah, as always, it depends on your use case, right? Kirk has a great article that compares, you know, all the latest Mac models and and makes recommendations depending on your use case. And I would say in this case, if if it's something where you really need like a silent working environment, like we've mentioned before, I used to have a MacBook Pro that I was using while we were recording the podcast, and I was always paying super close attention to how loud my fans were getting. I actually installed third-party software so I could manually adjust the fan speed to keep it down a little bit, while hopefully not allowing my processor to burn out while we're recording. And uh, I'm so much happier using a MacBook Air. It's 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 a much better experience. So it all depends on what you're going to be using it for. Too. Yeah. So link in the show notes to my review. I think it's a wonderful Mac. I do think it's sexy. There's just something about the color and the shape and the bezels are thinner and the screen's brighter and there's a lot of good things. It's got MagSafe charging, which is really nice. Yay. I'm, I'm really happy they brought back MagSafe. Yeah. So you can charge it with that and you've got two ports free, which is, you know, a big improvement over the previous one. It's a great Mac. If you want to spend $200 more for this than the M1 MacBook Air, I don't think you'll be disappointed. One last thing is, as people have reported in the press, there's fingerprints show up on this. I have a photo in my review on the Antico Mac security blog. This is why Apple introduced a $19 polishing cloth, so you can rub the fingerprints off this Mac. It's just the nature of the color. I looked at my M1 
MacBook Air. It's space gray, and I see fingerprints. It's the darker one shows fingerprints more. That's all it is. You can't avoid it. It's this is just this shows that you're actually using your computer. If you need a microfiber polishing cloth, then maybe we need to go back to the drawing board because this is not a good user experience. Okay, until next week, Josh. Stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com. <laughs>